0: Good morning, church. Welcome back from spring break. Those of you that endured the uh, snow yesterday, I didn't endure it, and I don't feel bad about that. If you're new to Glen Ellen Bible Church, my name is John Vandervelde. I serve as the executive pastor. to joy to preach this morning. If you are a guest, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks for checking us out. Uh, if you're a kid and you're here and you want to leave, now's the time. Head on out. If you are a guest, uh, we do have somebody in the Welcome Center after the service. We'd love for you to head back there. Ask them questions about us, as a, who we are as a church, as a community of faith. We also have a gift for you. It's a book written about uh, who we are as a church and our philosophy of ministry. So we'd love for you to pick up a copy of that. We have been making our way through the book of Deuteronomy as a church in our, in our sermon series the king and his people, today we are actually going to skip ahead just a few verses. We're going to skip the end of chapter 4 and we're going to start today in Deuteronomy 5. We're going to start right away in verse 1. The reason that we're skipping that bottom section of chapter 4 is Moses' remarks and what Moses covers in that section are radically similar to what Moses says in the introduction of chapter 4. Not that it's not important, but it's, it's just radically similar. And I'm sure all of you remember that I preached that sermon on the introduction to uh, chapter 4 back on March 13. And uh, you're supposed to laugh. That's a bad joke. First service laughed. They may be more awake than you guys are. Um, anyway, to avoid a rerun, uh, I would really preach basically that same sermon on this text uh, this morning. So to, to avoid that rerun, we're just going to start fresh right at the top of chapter 5, verse 1, this morning. Moses is gathered all his people. Remember, he's gathered all the people at Baal, Peor. He's, he's pleading with them, and he's commanding them to, to listen, to hear, to embody the, the decrees, the laws that are about to be shared with them. And this morning, in chapter 5, Moses gives a little bit more of that introduction, and then he, he's actually going to, to begin to share with them the Ten Commandments. And so we're going to cover that little introduction, and then we're going to cover commandment number one this morning. Let me uh, read for us the text, God's Word. It's in chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, this is what God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This morning, we're going to we're going to talk about that commandment, but we're going to we're going to talk a little bit more about this introduction. So Moses has gathered all the people and he commands them with some really clear commands. The first one he gives is here. He says, "Hear Israel." And if you remember that word here is not simply just words coming into our ears and resting in our minds when when Moses says hear, and when we hear that word here, we need to understand that that is, that is an embodiment of what they're about to listen to. What, what's about to go in their ears must actually change their heart. They must, must fully embrace what's about to be shared. This isn't simply in the ears and in the mind. This is, this is fully following, fully engaging with what is about to be shared. The second thing he says is, he says, Learn. Learn. I'm going to take a risk. Does anybody here remember what that word learn is in Hebrew? We talked about this on March 13 when we introduced this chapter. Anybody remember that Hebrew word? Come on. Come on. Starts with an L. L Yeah, go for it. That's a good word. (laughs) Praise God for that word. Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. Le, you got it, lamad. Lamad. Thank you very much. Lamad. Lamad is this word, this Hebrew word that says so much more than just learn. It says, it says to, to be active. To be active in teaching and to be active in receiving. It's this, this word of prod or poke or spur. So if we are to lamad, we are, we're to take this in, we're to hear, and we're then to be active. It's to... It's teaching and learning that actually changes our hearts and and causes us to live righteously. That's what lamad is. And that's the word that Moses uses again here. And then he, he commands them to follow. Not simply to hear and to know and to store it, but to actually put it to practice. To follow, to walk, and to actually... to to walk in in the truth that's about to be shared, to walk in these decrees and commands, to actually do what they say, not simply to hear them and know them. And so after he makes these these commands, after he pleads with Israel to to listen, to hear, to lament, and to follow, he reminds them. He reminds them of two very important things. And we're going to look at those this morning. The first one comes to us in verse 2 and 3, chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. The Lord our God, he made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive today. So the first thing before Moses gives commandment number one, the first thing that he reminds the people of, uh, something that happened at Mount Horeb, he reminds them of covenant. Covenant. He reminds them of covenant. Mark brought that up this morning as he was sharing uh, with us and and bringing us to, to Lord's table for communion. Covenant. It's not a word that we use every day, but it's a word that's really, really important. It's a word that we need to understand because it's really the foundation of how God interacts with his people. It's really the backbone of the word of God. Our covenants That God has established with his people. It's really important that we understand what a covenant is. So, let me put a definition up on the screen to help us understand. It's really just a simple definition. A covenant is a chosen relationship or partnership in which two parties make binding promises to each other and work together to reach a common goal. They're often accompanied by oaths and signs and ceremonies. Covenants contain defined obligations and commitments, but they differ from a contract in that they are relational and personal. Today, we are a people of contracts, right? We we sign contracts for everything. We write them down and draw them up and and we sign them. Well, in that day, in the ancient Near East, they were a people of covenants. And perhaps the most important or, or most the uh, easiest way for us to understand covenant is to think of marriage. Marriage is a covenant. It's beyond just signing a marriage license, right? It's relational. It's personal. It, it, uh, we obligate ourselves to our spouse. And we have a greater good and, and unified goals in mind for our marriage. That's what a, a covenant is. A covenant is, is so much more than just a simple Contract. In the ancient Near East, people made covenants for all sorts of things. We have documents and records and historical um, pieces that share and tell us that kings made covenants with each other. They obligated themselves to one another in in a relational way that was beyond just a contract. Friends made covenants with each other. There were legal covenants as well that had vows and obligations and ceremonies around them. The ancient Near East were people of covenant, Covenantal people, covenanting was a part of who they were. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to us that that's how God interacts with his people. He interacts with them through covenants. He establishes these, these personal and deep and intimate covenants with his people. And so Moses reminds them of the covenant that God had established with them on Mount Horeb. And it's important that we understand this covenant a little bit more because there's sort of multiple covenants going on here. And so in order to kind of avoid some of the confusion, I'm, I'm going to do my best to try to explain what Moses is saying when he talks about covenants. Because it's, it's really important that the people understand what's going on here. And it's important that we understand what's going on here. What is the covenant that Moses speaks of when he is talking about the covenant that God made At Mount Horeb. This covenant that Moses talks about is traditionally called the Mosaic Covenant. This is the covenant through Moses. The New Testament often refers to this as the Old Covenant. And this is the covenant where God gives his law. This covenant is all about the law the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law that God establishes with his people. And and that covenant came through Moses and it came through Moses to the people who were gathered with him as they're about to enter the promised land. Moses is really specific here. He says, this is not referring uh, to the covenant made with our ancestors. That's Abraham and Isaac and Joseph. He's not talking about that covenant. He's talking about the unique covenant through Moses made on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai where he establishes the law for the people. He gives them the law of how they're supposed to live as they're about to enter the promised land. Making sense here? We're tracking a little bit? So this is a unique covenant. The difference between the the covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, or what we often refer to as the old covenant, and the covenant made with Abraham. We need to talk about the difference here. The covenant made with Abraham is still in place while Moses has this unique covenant with God. There's this covenant That God makes with Abraham and he promises him that he's going to provide for him land. He's going to make him a nation. He's going to make him a people. And those people are going to be as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And that covenant is still in place when this new and unique Mosaic covenant comes. And that covenant, that covenant with Abraham, it's really important we understand the difference. The covenant with Abraham is an unconditional covenant. God chose Abraham, God went to Abraham, God covenanted with him and said, no matter what happens, Abraham, you are my people. I'm going to build a nation out of you that's going to be as many as the stars in the sky. We are benefits from that covenant. God will never ever not hold up that covenant. So as Israel is if you read through the Old Testament you know that Israel what they they wander right they have these these moments of really high moments where they're following God and everything's great and then everything crashes there's even a moment where they actually are taken out of the promised land and they're put in captivity in Babylon but what happens a remnant survives And God God restores his people and his relationship with them. And that's because of the covenant he made with Abraham. It's an unconditional covenant. It's going to happen no matter what. The Mosaic covenant, however, is a conditional covenant. It means that the people of God must do certain things in order to achieve the promises that God gives them in the covenant. And the details of this are all outlined in Exodus 19, 19 through 23. You can read all about what God says and what he does. I'm going to spare us the reading of all of that text this morning. But go back and look at it. Let me me just summarize what, what God says in that covenant with his people. He says that he's going to make them his very possession, that these people would be God's people, unique people, a special people, his very people. They would be a kingdom of priests. That's what they would be. They would be known for if they followed this law, these commands, the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. That they would be a kingdom of priests. And they would be the holy nation. This would be a holy nation if they followed these laws, decrees, and commands. If they, they held up their end of the covenant. This conditional covenant was given to the people of Israel so that they would enjoy the promised land, so that they would flourish in the promised land, so that they would become everything that God had hoped for them, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in his his very possession. That's what this covenant is all about. And that's why Moses takes the time to remind them. So this this covenant and this, this law was given 40 years previous because the people were about to enter the promised land and then they made the terrible mistake. We learned about that in Deuteronomy 1 and then God sends them into the wilderness for 40 years and now they're back. They're about to enter the promised land and Moses says, don't forget. Don't forget. This is is the time. This is when the covenant matters. We're about to enter the promised land and if we're going to flourish, if we're going to be everything God hoped for us, It's time that we know this law, and we embody this law, and we understand this law, and we hold fast to it. That's what Moses is doing here in reminding them. The second thing that Moses reminds the people of is rescue. So first covenant, and then second rescue. This comes to us in verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I am the Lord your God. That phrase, Lord your God. That phrase, Lord your God, is used 396 times in the Old Testament. And 279 of those times are found in the book of Deuteronomy. So clearly that declaration is really important to the people as they're about to enter the promised land. The understanding that I am the Lord your God. That phrase, Lord, your God, is made up of two Hebrew words. One, the first one, Lord, we translate as Lord, it's Yahweh. I am Yahweh. That is who I am. I am Yahweh. that's, That's who God is. He is Yahweh. That's his personal name. That's how we understand him. He is Yahweh. And the second word is Elohim. I am Yahweh Elohim. And Elohim just means God. So he is saying to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, your Elohim. I am Yahweh, your God. That is who I am. It's really important that the people understand that. Because there's going to be other people that they're going to interact with as they enter the promised land who have different Elohim. But these people, Israel, if you're a follower of Yahweh, Yahweh is your Elohim. The Lord is your God. And what does Yahweh do? What is the character of Yahweh? Who is Yahweh? What's the the declarative statement he makes about himself? He said, I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He is a God of of deliverance. And he is a God of rescue. And church, if we want to bridge from Deuteronomy to the gospel... We can make that bridge really easily right here. That Yahweh, this this Yahweh who we know and who we follow, he is a God of deliverance and rescue. And for us today, that deliverance and rescue, we don't get rescued out of Egypt, right? But what we do get rescued from is the slavery and the captivity of our own sin. And that rescue comes from Jesus. God sent Jesus to rescue us in the character of who God is, in the character of who Yahweh is, we have Jesus, our deliverer, our rescuer. When we are trapped in sin, he comes and he rescues us from our sin, dying on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, raising from the dead. We've been been rescued when we put our faith and our hope and our trust in him. So, God declares who He is and He he declares what He does, who He is and what He does, and then He moves quickly into the first commandment. That first commandment is, is really clear, really direct. You shall have no other gods before me. I am Yahweh Elohim, and you will have no other gods before me. Now we need to be really clear on what this statement means, because there's this weird word in it, before. So like one reading of this text can be, you shall have no other gods before me. Like God is endorsing what's called henotheism, meaning you've got one primary god, but you've got all these other gods or some sort of polytheism, where you can worship other gods. That is not what God is saying. When, when, when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, he means, I am it. It is me alone. There's no other gods that you can worship, dabble with, talk to, entertain, think about. It's me and me alone. Yahweh is a jealous God, and he wants all of his people's attention and worship and devotion. And we get some clarity on this statement in chapter 4. If we go back a little bit to verse 39. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God. Yahweh is Elohim in heaven above and on earth below. And then, I love this, there is no other. That's what this statement means in the Ten Commandments. There's no endorsement of polytheism or some other type of multiple deity experience. It's, Elo- it's Yahweh and Yahweh alone. You shall have no other gods. He's telling the people of Israel, you cannot be polytheistic like the people all around you that you're about to interact with in the promised land. You can't dabble with any of that stuff. It's me and me alone. This is the starting point. For, for God unveiling his law and his decrees, his moral law and his ceremonial law and his civil law. This right here, this is the foundation. Israel must get this right. This, this must happen. Yahweh must be the only God in their lives. God takes this very seriously. We can actually read ahead. I won't put the slide up, but in Deuteronomy 13, he starts to talk about this a little bit more. And he actually, it gets really serious because he says that as you're in the promised land, people will start to whisper in your ear to try to to distract you and try to get you to worship other gods. And those people should be put to death because of their... Add, uh, offering temptation to you to worship other gods. This is very, very important, very, very serious. This is the foundation for the law and decrees that are about to happen. See, the Israelites, they're about to walk into this promised land, into, a, into an ocean that's full of temples to other deities and other gods and Asherah poles standing Worshipping goddess, a goddess of fertility. Molech, the god who requires you to sacrifice your own children. All different types of bales are going to be presented to them as they cross the Jordan and they enter into the Promised Land. Every city that they take will have a temple to another god, but Yahweh. So, what are we to make of this today? What are we to make of this today? If, if we believe that the Ten Commandments are the, the foundation of the law of God, the moral law of God, which stands today, if we're to follow the Ten Commandments as followers of Yahweh through Jesus Christ, if we're to, to understand it, that this commandment and the nine others that follow it, what are we to make of this today? What are we to, to take from this what does it mean for us today to have no other gods but Yahweh? No other gods before Yahweh. For the Israelites, it's really clear. They're going to enter this land and there's no temples built to Yahweh. There's no place to worship Yahweh. There's no church, or temple, nothing established for, for Yahweh. But there's a plethora of temples established to other gods. So it's really clear for them, you're going to cross that Jordan and, and don't be tempted to go into any of those other temples. Don't bow down to any of those other gods. But what about for us today? And clearly this was a command given to them, but it clearly means something for us today. What, it, what does it mean? What, what ocean are we swimming in that's full of temptations to, to worship other gods? What, what temples are built in our community that we're drawn to? What poles are standing that draw our attention away from Yahweh? I've had this text for over a month and have been reading it and wrestling with it and thinking about it and asking people like, what's the polytheism or what's the henotheism that we may be tempted with to put other gods before Yahweh or to to worship? What, What could it be? Now clearly there's a Sikh temple and a Hindu temple, and a mosque. And maybe we are tempted to to dabble in another religion. But I don't think that's the, the biggest temptation for this group of people in this room. It's not the greatest temptation for me. As a follower of Yahweh, what am I most tempted with? I asked some people, and they said a couple different things that are interesting. The first one, The first answer that came to me or that somebody gave me when I said, w- w- what would be another God that you would, what our society would be faced with and be tempted to worship? And they said sexuality. Sexuality. I think that's pretty good. I mean, it's bad, but it's a good uh, suggestion. The second one that somebody said to me was education. Because in, in a community like this, we have these massive uh, places built, right? They look almost sometimes like temples. There's one not too far from here, right? A great, beautiful establishment that uh, schools in every community, neighborhood schools, great big mammoth high schools, colleges. Maybe it's we, we worship the mind, right? Our education. Somebody said sports. Sports is the, the God that I go to. <laughs> makes me feel better. I get affirmation. I get encouragement. Maybe it's our kids' sports. Somebody said our children. We worship our children. Their accomplishments and getting them to be excellent and great. And that that is our God in the suburban community. And those all may be true. Those all may be tempting, but... As I kept praying and kept thinking and kept wrestling, what I kept coming back to, that the God that I am most tempted to, to turn to, the God that you may be most tempted to turn to, is actually the God of self. Me. I am most tempted to worship myself, to put myself, my happiness, my accomplishments. My viewpoints, my ideas, me, 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 right? Here's me and here's the world. We love to worship ourselves. This is the message that that is whispered in our ear all the time in our society. You're important, you matter, all about you. You do you, you get yours. We worship, we worship the God of self. We've turned ourselves into deities that we worship, making ourselves better, making ourselves the most important thing in our lives. That our story is the most important story and it matters the most, and we need to tell everybody about it. We need to express ourselves and who we are and our identity, that we can heal ourselves we can save ourselves, and we can protect ourselves, that we don't need to rely on anyone else, or, or any religion, or any deity, or anything else. And at the same time, we want everyone to accept us on our terms, to validate our situations. We worship. Me-centered marriages, me-centered relationships, Now, I want to be really, really clear here. So I I really want you to hear me. I am not saying that your story doesn't matter. I am not saying that your identity doesn't matter. Your identity matters because it matters to Christ. And I am not saying that you should not care for yourself, that that self-care and soul care are not important. That's not what I'm saying. Spending time working on yourself and getting help with your situation, those are all very, very important things. In a time where mental illness is on the rise and a time when suicide rates are hitting record highs, I am keenly aware as a pastor who works in a church that it's really important that we take care of ourselves and our minds. We do some soul care and some self-care. But there is a huge difference between caring for yourself and worshiping yourself. Am I right? There's a big difference between those two things. And I think sometimes we have swung so far as a society and so far as a people of God that instead of just caring for ourselves, we are actually worshiping ourselves and we have become gods. There's a big difference. If there's a a throne in your heart, a throne in your heart, who is sitting on the throne? Is it Yahweh? Is it his son Jesus? Or is it yourself? If you take an honest look at your life, are are you caring for yourself and worshiping Yahweh or... Are you worshiping yourself and just kind of caring about Yahweh? Church, I feel the pressure. We all feel the pressure to kneel down and say, I am the most important. What matters is me, my story, my identity. I want everybody to accept me for who I am and I am the most important, I'm going to work on this and do that, that we worship ourselves. It's such such an attractive trap, because the the message of society is telling us to do it. So what what do we do? What do we do to protect ourselves from from being polytheistic? Or or if we're steeped in that right now, where we feel like we're, we're sitting on the throne of our hearts, and we're kind of just caring a little bit about Yahweh. What what do we do? What do we do? Well, God, thankfully, in his His word, He, he provides for us an answer. Don't you love that about God? Don't you love that about his word? He provides for us an answer. For us today, the church today, for those of us sitting here today, it comes in, in, from Paul in the book of Romans. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. It's, this is filled with language about worship and about where you go and how you sacrifice, right? It's, a, it's such a deep connection with the Old Testament. He says, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When we're tempted, or if we are worshiping the God of self, the clear answer is is to present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. To let go of trying to control everything in your life and be the perfect you. It's to open your hands and say, Lord, have your way with me. Use me. It's to, to lay your very life down. All your ideas and all your ambition and all your hopes and all your dreams and everything in your life, you lay yourself down and say, Lord, I am yours. I don't want to worship myself anymore. I only want to worship you. Presenting yourself as a living sacrifice. This is our spiritual act of worship. Isn't that encouraging that there's hope for us? That God will will accept this? He will accept your life as a living sacrifice, and he will bring you joy and meaning and fulfillment when you simply get past yourself and say, God, do with me what you will. Be in a light for him in a dark place. Let me pray. Father God, we love you and thank you for your word. It's encouraging and challenging and and yet hopeful, Lord. I pray for the people in this room that they would hear clearly that that you are their God and that you love them and that you will accept them today as living sacrifices. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.